welcome to stat. I'm telling you all medical true crime stories. The nick is bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in the R, and now she's sharing the knowledge. So let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts. She ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare, 'cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And I am your host, Karen Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Welcome back. Now, there has been a little bit of a delay in putting this episode out, and I apologize for it. First of all, uh, you can probably hear I got... Uh, unwell for a little while and I'm just getting my voice back so I hope you can make it through this episode with this voice. Um, I didn't know how long it would last for so I just thought what the heck I'm going to go ahead and record. Second of all I ran into some technical difficulties as my interface I use broke boo hiss so I got myself a new one and here I am ready to start part three and the final episode of the Andrea Yates case. Just one more thing before I get started. I just want to correct a mistake that I made in the last episode. I said that Andrea had killed her children on June the 24th, 2001, and that was wrong. The date was actually June the 20th, 2001. So just wanted to redact that statement. I last left off with the 911 call that Andrea made on that fateful day when she drowned all five of her children. Between 8 and 9 a.m. on June 20th, 2001, Andrea Yates and her children were up and about starting their day. The children had had their breakfast and Andrea was robotically eating corn pops out of the box. Rusty had given Andrea her morning medication, a whopping dose of 300 milligrams of an antidepressant called Effexor. That night and the previous night, she had a 45 milligram dose of another antidepressant called Remeron, with a 15 milligram dissolvable Remeron Soltab booster in the morning. Andrea was on enough psychiatric medication to put most people in a coma, and it definitely added to her psychosis because it would almost be impossible to function on it. I just want to run over some of the side effects that these drugs have, many of them overlapping each other, thus either exacerbating them and adding to an already very sick woman, especially one that's psychotic. Yes, depressed, but psychotic. So it might have helped the depression that she was suffering from, but not the psychosis. Anyway, here, here are the side effects. So for Effexor, it's dizziness, nervousness, nausea, headaches, anxiety, insomnia, strange dreams, drowsiness, increased sweating, blurred vision, dry mouth, and seizures. And also for Risperdal, she could have extra pyramidal effects, which are jerky, involuntary motions of the head, neck, arms, bodies, or eyes. More dizziness, tiredness, drowsiness, fatigue, headache, restlessness, anxiety, insomnia, and more nausea, vomiting, and stomach pain on top of that. Well, butrin, agitation, dry mouth, insomnia, headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, dizziness, ringing in the ears, Vision problems or blurred vision, tremor, changes in appetite, joint aches, and seizures, especially at higher doses, which she was at. And the last, Remeron, drowsiness, dizziness, strange dreams, 
vision changes, racing thoughts, decreased need for sleep, unusual risk-taking behavior, feelings of extreme happiness or sadness, being more talkative than usual, feelings of restlessness and the inability to sit still, blurred vision, tunnel vision, eye pain swelling, or seeing halos around lights, a light-headed feeling like you might pass out, and changes in weight or appetite. So why did I go through this long list of all these side effects? Because they all cross over. If you think about what her behaviors were and how they affected her, maybe these meds, like I said, exacerbated it, like lack of sleep, nausea, vomiting, she was barely eating. Maybe it wasn't just because she was catatonic. Maybe she legitimately felt really sick. Agitation, restlessness, fatigue, dizziness, nervousness, anxiety, strange dreams. I mean, if this woman was already hallucinating, already delusional, how could the max dosage and overdose of some of these medications not have affected her in some way. If you think about a a gushing deep wound, three or four band-aids are not going to stop the bleeding. My opinion is that Dr. Syed's malpractice added to Andrea's condition and possibly exacerbated it. He lied in her medical documents, refused direction or collaboration from the other medical professionals, discharged her early, didn't provide proper follow-up care, and lied under oath. This guy is a scumbag. Rusty left a very sick, psychotic, zombie-like Andrea with his five children. Her mother was to show up shortly to help out, but had not arrived yet. In the hour between 9 and 10, Andrea filled up the bathtub like she had on May when little Noah voiced his concern to his grandmother. She then drowned her children one at a time, placing them all beside each other in a bed and covered them up with a blanket. All except for Noah, who she left floating facing down in the toilet. She then made a 911 call, and afterwards she called Rusty at work. This is how the conversation went. Quote, Andrea, you need to come home. Rusty, what's wrong? Andrea, it's time. Rusty, what do you mean? Andrea, it's time. Rusty rushed to his car. He was terrified. He had heard his wife talk like this before when she was at her sickest. He called his mother on the way to the house. She should have been there already. The police and EMS were rushing to the scene, while Andrea sat calmly and quietly waiting for all to arrive. At 9.52 a.m., Officer Frank Stumpel received a 911 dispatch telling him to go do a welfare check at Beachcomber Lane. Officer David Knapp, who was also in the area, went to this call. Andrea opened the front door wet, eyes black and large and panting. I'm going to play you a clip from Frank Stumpo, who is now retired, to explain what he saw. The dispatcher assigned me that particular call for service, being that it was in my zone of responsibility. I moved into the house, and David approached me right at the hallway. And I said, what's going on? And he looked at me, and he said, it's a homicide. So I looked to my right and down, and there was Yates. She was sitting on a couch. She was just sitting there. She never looked at me. I walked into the room, and I was expecting to find a man on the floor, a body. And I was looking around, looking around, saying, what? And I seen this little tiny head. And it was looking right at me. And the little head was about maybe 10 or 15 feet from me at the edge of the bed. 
I said, what in the world? And I thought it was a doll. And I walked over to that little tiny head and I touched it right here, put my finger on it. And I said, what in that? And I picked up the blanket and there was that little tiny body. It was a human being. I said, oh my, and I picked up the, and as I continued to pick up the blanket, it was one body after another. One, two, three, four. I walked back down the hallway, made a right turn into the bathroom, and there I found the oldest one floating face down in the tub. Another unit, David Knapp, he checked by with me, which is common practice, you know, day shift, it's slow, guys. Killing time, helping each other out. And the husband showed up, and he started screaming, Andrea, you finally did it. Andrea, you really did it. She just sat there and just stared at the door with this blank look on her face. It was just like void of anything. But everybody was affected. And anyone that says they weren't, they're not telling the truth. We just looked at each other, and there was this moment in time where all the training, you know, all the scenes that you have made, everything that you have been taught and learned and instinct went right out the window. The news media were there in mass. They were there, 50, 60, 70 people. A woman could wipe out five of her kids, wipe out a whole family, and become a star. And that's what she was. And I told her that. I said, now you're a celebrity. And I brought her into the homicide division, brought her upstairs, and that was it. I can't even imagine. That clip was from a show called Global Matters, Andrea Yates. Rusty arrived at his home, and it was surrounded by police, EMS, and fire, along with a crowd of reporters and onlookers. He ran to his front door frantic and was told he was not allowed to enter the house. It was a sergeant by the name of David Svahn, stationed at the entryway, stopping Rusty from entering. As per Sergeant Svahn, Rusty asked in desperation, quote, What did she do to my kids? What did she do to my kids? He said his wife had called him at work and told him it was time to come home. His wife told him that she had hurt all five of the kids, and she finally did it. I told him all five of his children had passed away. He fell to the ground and pounded the ground and began screaming. Rusty was desperate to see his children and hold them and comfort them, and he wanted to see Andrea to ask questions. This couldn't be real. Svan directed Rusty to go to his backyard to wait. Rusty saw Andrea through a crack in the drapes, and he started yelling into the glass, How could you do this? I don't understand. As he crumpled to the ground, more screaming could be heard. And this screaming came from the children's grandmother, Dora Yates. She had just been told that all of her grandchildren were dead. At 11 o'clock, homicide officers Bob King and his partner, Officer Douglas Bacon, arrived and read Andrea her rights. They proceeded to investigate the house. Andrea was escorted out of the house by Frank Stumpo and met with a crowd of ravenous reporters. Eric Mel, a sergeant at the Harris County Police Headquarters, was assigned to ask Andrea questions. The interrogation was recorded but not videotaped. No one would be able to see how incredibly sick she was. Andrea also didn't have an attorney present. There is a very long transcript of Andrea's interview, but instead of reading it, I'm going to sum it up and outline the most important aspects of it. Andrea was asked about the murders, and she answered them in a zombie-like state. Her eyes were black and lifeless. She spoke in a monotone voice, giving mostly one-word answers, often staring off into the distance with big pauses, sometimes unable to finish her sentences. She had to be prompted to answer many of the questions. 
She was clearly too mentally unwell to be interviewed, let alone without a lawyer present. Her behavior was not any different than how it had been over the last couple of months and previous occasions when she was really unwell. Dr. Melissa Ferguson was the Mental Health Administration psychiatrist on call that night. She prescribed Andrea two milligrams of Ativan and admitted her to the third floor psychiatric unit of the hospital. Andrea had not been prescribed any of her other psychiatric medication and started to go into withdrawal that night. These medications can make you very sick if you're taking off of them cold turkey, even dangerous, especially at the doses that she had been given. At 1.30 on June 21st, Andrea appeared before Magistrate Carol Karras, who found probable cause for further detention and ordered her to be held without bond. Andrea was left in her cell naked as a precaution against her committing suicide. On Thursday the 22nd, a nurse in care of Andrea reported the following, quote, she also requested that her doctor cut the consumer's hair into the shape of a crown. She wanted to see whether the mark of the beast, the number 666, was still there. End of quote. As Andrea was in jail, Rusty was trying to cope with the living hell that he was going through and the media circus that just wouldn't leave him alone. Much controversy occurred over Rusty's handling of the tragedy. Many felt that he was partially responsible for the deaths of his children. During his interviews, he showed much compassion for Andrea. He was very pleasant, smiled a lot, and seemed unaffected. He was criticized for the way he conducted the children's funerals and many other of his behaviors. I believe that this is completely unfair. We all grieve in different ways and oftentimes at ways that seem incomprehensible to others. He was demonized by many, while others completely supported him and called Andrea a monster who deserved the death penalty. People needed someone to blame. Although I don't think that Rusty should have been judged for the way he grieved, I don't think he's blameless. He's a very intelligent man. He may not have been well-versed in mental health, but he wasn't blind. He was concerned about his wife's behavior, but he didn't put his foot down when it came to having more children. He admitted to not wanting to be inconvenienced at times by Andrea's admissions and to who would care for his children in her absence. At least one doctor, Dr. Starbranch, took Andrea's condition very seriously and had advised them not to have any more children. He had her live in a tiny broken-down bus with four children while she was unwell. It's easy to say he was clueless, but he had enough intelligence, info, and experience with Andrea's increasing mental health not to be. Again, I can't imagine his suffering, but I don't think he's without blame. Here's a clip from Rusty. You know, the decision to have more children in 2001 was based on information we got from the doctor because we'd successfully treated it in 99. If it happened again, we knew how to treat it now. Thinking ahead, we were thinking, well, this will be, if it happens at all, it's going to be a relatively short spell. She'll be down at, at worst for a while. So he was well aware that Andrea could get very sick again after having another child. And he was willing, as a husband, to see her go through that and then go through another treatment in order for them to have other children. I think that's incredibly selfish and irresponsible. On Friday, June 2001, Andrea stood before Judge Belinda Hill. The judge said that the accused had intentionally and knowingly caused the deaths of her five children with a deadly weapon, water. Do you understand the charges against you? Judge Hill asked. Yes, ma'am, Andrea answered. The court then determined that Yates was indigent and appointed attorney Bob Scott. Another lawyer, George Parnham, 
had received a phone call about Andrea Yates' case. The call was from John O'Sullivan, a lawyer who he had worked a murder case with years prior. O'Sullivan had been Andrea's family lawyer for years. George Parnham was asked if he would be willing to represent Andrea, and he agreed. Both George Parnham and his associate William Odom remembered when they first met Andrea and how sick she appeared. Wendell Odom remembers his first visit with Yates. It was the way her eyes looked. They were shark-like eyes, he thought. There were no pupils. He had never seen anything like Andrea Yates before in his life. He had had a lot of clients committed to mental institutions who weren't what you'd call mentally stable. But in his 30 years as a prosecutor and defense attorney, quote, there wasn't even a close second to Andrea Yates, end of quote. Her hair was totally matted, he said. She's scratching constantly at the crown of her head, which she thought was marked with the sign of the devil, 666. She'd rubbed her head raw trying to get it off. She was mentally ill to the point that we were a sideshow, end of quote. Andrea at one point told lawyers that she didn't need them because she was going to plead guilty. But that didn't deter Parnham and his team. They were going to represent, care for, and support Andrea. Dr. Melissa Ferguson asked Andrea if there was anything else she wanted to share with the Harris County Mental Health Administration treatment team on June 22nd. Andrea said, quote, I am Satan. You know what I mean. To fulfill the prophecy, Satan must be destroyed, he said. It's better to tie a millstone around your neck and drown in a river than to stumble. End of quote. The children had to be killed because they could not be saved any other way, Yates had told her. Andrea Yates believed that there were cameras in her home put there by media to watch her performance as a mother, Ferguson said. She said the cameras had been monitoring her for years. The voices were as clear as you are hearing me right now. She was started on Risperdal. On Sunday, June 24th at 3.30 in the afternoon, Andrea stood naked in her cell, chanting, Eat, drink, and be merry, because we all shall die. A parable from the Bible. Can you imagine that image of an incredibly ill, psychotic woman standing naked and preaching the Bible? She is so incredibly sick. Dr. Ferguson asked Andrea, quote, Mrs. Yates, do you know how sick you are? I am not mentally ill and started crying. End of quote. A day later, Yates said she had been having auditory hallucinations, that she heard voices of Satan over the intercom system of her cell. The days leading up to her murders, Andrea said that as her children were watching cartoons, a message was broadcast personally to her that she was a bad mother and her children were eating too much sugar. Sometime before that, when she had gone with her husband to see the movie Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, a satanic character in the film had told her directly that she had looted him long enough. She was concerned that the children were, quote, tainted and might be retarded, end of quote, and that her children were not righteous because she was evil. They had to die to be saved. Dr. Ferguson suspected her patient was having visual hallucinations in jail as well as hearing voices. Andrea later confirmed that the visual hallucinations were of men on horseback and teddy bears and ducks all pouring out of the cinder block cell walls. As far as Ferguson can see, Andrea Yates had zero understanding of psychosis. On July 2nd, another psychiatrist, 
Deborah Osterman returned from vacation and took over daily treatment of Yates from Ferguson, her supervisor. Yates had lapsed back into catatonia and didn't speak as freely as she had with Ferguson. Though Yates denied wanting to kill herself, in Osterman's opinion, she was at an extraordinarily high risk for attempting suicide. Osterman increased Yates' dosage of Haldol that day, attempting to get the auditory and visual hallucinations under better control. The psychosis continued. In fact, it took more than a month to bring her out of psychosis, and that is an unusually long time. Yates' Haldol dosage stabilized at 15 milligrams a day. It only takes 2 milligrams a day for a typical maintenance dose for chronic psychiatric illness that are responsive to the medication. The next psychiatrist to assess Andrea was the psychiatrist hired by the defense team, Lucy Perrier. She is an international expert specializing in the treatment of women with reproductive psychological disorders and a long-term associate of Baylor College of Medicine in Houston's Medical Center. In other words, the perfect person to assess and represent Andrea. She assessed Andrea 13 days after she had murdered her children, and in 15 minutes of meeting Andrea, she had diagnosed her as psychotic, suffering from a delusion regarding her children and herself. Here's a clip from Dr. Perrier. She was the sickest person I've ever seen in my life. Um, she was not bathed. She was dressed in this orange jail outfit. Her shirt was falling off of her. She didn't have a bra on. Her hair was hanging in her face, and she was shaking. My first thought was, this woman has postpartum psychosis. Usually the disorder takes the form of a delusion, and the horrible tragedy of postpartum psychosis is that the delusion is about the child in most cases. I've seen women who are afraid to bathe their children for fear that they'll drown them. Women who have had thoughts of suffocating their children. Really horrible, horrible things. Clearly she was ill probably in her late teens or early 20s, but, but very subtly. There were some choices made along the way, though, that I think contributed to the final outcome. I think one unfortunate thing that happened was that they met this preacher. Not that the preacher caused her to be sick, but she didn't have any ability to judge the rightness or wrongness of what this man was saying to her. Women with histories of postpartum psychosis have 50 to 80 percent chance of having another episode. This is a huge problem. This is a moral dilemma for a psychiatrist. It might have been to Andrea's advantage legally to not medicate her, to leave her quote-unquote crazy so that the jury could see what state she was in at the time she committed the drownings. Part of that clip was a little jarring. I apologize for that, but I just wanted to get across Dr. Perrier's opinion and how she felt and, and saw Andrea's condition. On August 9th, 2001, the Harris County District Attorney's Office filed notice of the state's intent to seek the death penalty as a penalty in Andrea Yates' case. Parnum and Odom were stunned and confused. They had believed that there was no way the state would ask for the death penalty for a defendant with a well-documented mental illness. But there was a method behind D.A. Rosenthal's madness. By seeking the death penalty, he had unlimited budget to prosecute this case. Houston jurors had to decide whether Andrea Yates was competent to stand trial for her life on September 18, 2001. The hearing had been delayed for one week from its scheduled start on September 18th due to the World Trade Center and the Pentagon attacks. 
When Andrea appeared on the first day of the trial, she looked very different from the woman that had killed her children. People were wondering, where was this profoundly mentally ill woman? Why did she look very different from the one that was described? Andrea looked well. She was clean and well-groomed and her eyes were clear and she was able to function better. But it took three months of intensive care to get her into this state. One of the treatments that had worked incredibly well was Haldol, this antipsychotic that Andrea had responded well to years before and denied to her by Dr. Saeed. The thing was is that Andrea was not well at all. She was still a very sick woman. George Parnham and his team were pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. As opposed to many TV shows and movies, it is rarely used and even less proven. Insanity pleas are raised in less than 1% of all felony cases. Acquittals for reason of insanity occur in no more than 25% of those cases. This is according to veteran criminal defense lawyer Catherine M. Case. The jury unanimously voted that Andrea was competent to stand trial. Andrea patted her lawyer on the back and said, quote, Was the verdict what we were hoping for? End of quote. She didn't have a clue. With much scrutiny, a jury was selected, and the trial began on February 8, 2002. When Andrea asked how she would plea, she said not guilty. Judge Hill presided over the case and would not tolerate any foolishness. She was to rule this court with an iron fist. This was one of the biggest cases, if not the biggest case, of her career. A big list of witnesses was sworn in en masse. They opened the trial with a very dramatic speech as to what was to be expected. This is part of the opening. I want to set the stage for both sides. Quote, Luke, John, Paul, Mary, Noah. In no particular order. He described Andrea Yates' 911 call, the drownings of the murdered children, and the activities of the police at the murder scene. Quote, you will hear that her motive was altruistic. She thought it was right and good to do this to her children. You will also hear evidence that she knew it was an illegal thing. That it was a sin. That it was wrong. You will hear about the treatments that are effective. And what shoulda, woulda, coulda have been done and whose fault this is. We don't have to prove the fault of who this is. We don't have to defend the mental health system of the United States of America. The medical examiners would testify to the bruises that were on these children from holding their heads underwater. Andrea Yates is presumed to be sane. The evidence will show that beyond a reasonable doubt, she is guilty of the murders of Noah, John, and Mary Yates. End of quote. Andrea's lawyer, George Parnham, set the stage with this. Quote, How does a mother who has given birth, who has nurtured, who has protected, and who has loved five children interrupt their lives? How are nature's acts of birth, protection, and love inverted to cause what happened on June 20th? Andrea's actions were the definition of insanity. End of quote. Parnum hit the highlights of Yates' struggle with mental illness, its severity, and her inability to get proper treatment. Day after day, the witnesses testified. Rusty, Dora Yates, Dr. Starbranch, but one of the witnesses that felt the most heat was Dr. Saeed. He testified on March 4, 2002. Parnum felt that whoever prepared Saeed to testify did a great job because Dr. Saeed was grilled, contradicted, and attempted to be held accountable. However, he was evasive by trying to evade the truth by not giving straight answers. He played games. He answered with, 
I don't know. I don't recall. It might have been. I can't say 100%. That sounds like it might be right. Really vague answers coming from a professional who dealt with the health and well-being of mentally ill patients. He was questioned about whether he had made contact with Dr. Starbranch. He said, quote, I don't recall having made contact. However, I recall that I made attempts to call her on at least a couple of occasions. End of quote. George Parnham asked, Please, if you would take your time and check the records and determine for this jury when your efforts were made to contact Dr. Starbranch. End of quote. The time passed and Saeed flipped the pages. Quote from Saeed. I know I have a notation here from her second inpatient treatment that we got consent from Mrs. Yates, and the consent was faxed to Dr. Starbranch's office. I tried to call Dr. Starbranch. I made a couple of attempts, and in one of the attempts, I talked to Dr. Starbranch's office personnel personally, and I think that's what resulted in us getting the records. End of quote. This was an outright lie. Parnham asked, quote, all those efforts you expected occurred relative to the second stay beginning on May the 4th, is that correct? Saeed, that's how it's documented. Parnum, there are no records that would indicate any attempts made by you or your office staff to contact Dr. Starbranch between the dates of, of March 31st up until May 9th. Saeed, it appears to be so. The truth seems to be that he refused to consult with the only psychiatrist that was able to get any positive results with Andrea that being Dr. Starbranch. This is further indication that Saeed mishandled Andrea's case with gross misconduct. So these are the other things that he did. He falsified documentation, treated her at a facility which was ill-equipped to treat a patient such as Andrea. She was discharged when she had shown no improvement to an outpatient program that was for substance abuse. I'm going to go out on a limb to say that Saeed played a significant role in the events that led up to the murders of the Yates children. The other psychiatrists that testified were Dr. Park Dietz for the prosecution and Dr. Philip Resnick for the defense. Resnick was a professor of psychiatry and director of the Division of Forensic Psychology at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. Resnick had been studying parents who killed their children for more than 30 years, and he taught courses on the subject to agents at FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. He was also an expert in the faking of mental illness. He was more than qualified to evaluate Andrea for her defense attorneys. Resnick testified that he had evaluated Andrea for three and a half weeks after her arrest. He visited her in jail. His findings supported that of all the other psychiatrists that had visited and treated Andrea in jail. It was Resnick's opinion that Andrea Yates suffered from delusions and auditory hallucinations going back to 1999. He diagnosed her with a combination of schizophrenia and clinical depression. Every mental health professional familiar with Yates, including Resnick and Dietz, agreed that she suffered from a severe mental disease on June 20th when she killed her children. In Resnick's opinion, even though she knew it was against the law, she did not know right from wrong and did what she thought was right in her psychotic state. Resnick really fought for Andrea's innocence. Here's a clip from him. Cacodemonomania. It's literally believing one is possessed by a demon. And uh, it is a known phenomenon that occurs uh, in people with religious delusions. Once she became psychotic, it tied in with her religious beliefs at the time. The psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Dietz's argument for Andrea's guilt was this. 
He agreed that Andrea was severely mentally ill with schizoaffective disorder, which is a combination of another mental illness like depression or bipolar with schizophrenia, and in Andrea's case, depression. He did not believe that she was suffering with postpartum psychosis. He believed that the stress of her living condition since 1999 had a cumulative effect, and Andrea had killed her children in the resentment and desperation. He stated that nothing in the hospitals or any other admission indicated psychosis or hallucinations. Dietz played with the wording and the charts to manipulate a much different picture of Andrea's condition. In fact, Dr. Starbranch testified that Andrea was in the top five most mentally ill patients that she had cared for and the most difficult to get out of psychosis. Dr. Starbranch felt that ECT or electroconvulsive therapy would be the best way to treat Andrea. She said, quote, I think it was a very appropriate treatment to recommend and tragic that it wasn't provided because all of those conditions can lead to catatonia and not eating and not sleeping and not taking any fluids. When you're looking at a life-threatening condition, which it was, you consider ECT, end of quote. ECT is often seen as scary and barbaric, but it sounds like it's very effective in extreme cases such as Andrea's. It is used if all other treatments had not worked. And it is done in a very humane way now, under sedation and a very controlled environment. Dr. Starbranch consulted with two other psychiatrists and one who had specialized in ECT. Both doctors recommended it. Deet suggested that both Andrea and Rusty had refused it. The fact was is that Andrea was in no condition to make an informed decision, and it was Rusty that had refused it. And this is when Dr. Starbranch decided to try Haldol, and thankfully it worked. If only Andrea had continued to be treated by Dr. Starbranch. Deet's testimony was full of inconsistencies and mistruths. He testified that he thought she was a non-compliant patient who created problems that led to a spiteful murder of her children. A very common aspect of severe mental illness is being non-compliant with treatment. It comes part and parcel with the illness and the inability to make clear and logical decisions, especially if they are psychotic or have religious-driven delusions. Dietz also tried to argue that Andrea was mentally ill before the murder, but was aware of what she was doing when she killed her children, and that her motive was not to save the children from Satan, but rather acting out of spite. It was the killings themselves that had driven her crazy. After the fact, but not before. Now, something very controversial started around this point. Dietz had been a consultant on the show Law and Order, and Parnum asked him under oath, Have you been a consultant? Dietz answered, Two of them. Parnum, Okay, did either of them deal with postpartum depression or women's mental health? Dietz, as a matter of fact, there was a show of a woman with postpartum depression who drowned her children in a bathtub and was found insane, and it was aired shortly before the crime occurred. End of quote. He had flat out lied. There never was an episode ever made even close to this. He used this strictly to manipulate the jury. He lied under oath as well. When they finished with Dietz, Dr. Perrier was brought back to rebut Dietz. Dr. Perrier did her best to shoot down all of Dietz's ridiculous banter. On March 12th, three weeks after the testimony, the jury was set to hear final arguments. They lasted two hours, and then they were sent to make their decision, and it only took three and a half hours to make that decision. Judge Hill read the verdict out loud. Quote, We the jury find the defendant, Andrea Pia Yates, guilty of capital murders as charged in the indictment. 
end of quote. It was now time for the jury to decide one of two things, death by lethal injection or confinement to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for Life. In the meantime, author of one of the books I've used for reference, Susan O'Malley, and the book being Are You There Alone? The Unspeakable Crime of Andrea Yates, looked into the existence of this so-called Law and Order episode, and she convinced Stephen Long of the New York Post, who had been covering the case, to look into it. As to what happened next, I'm going to take an excerpt directly from the book to explain it. Long interviewed Dick Wolf by phone. Dr. Dietz was mistaken in his testimony. There had been no episode of Law and Order similar to the Yates crime. Quote from Parnum. We asked the court to consider a motion for mistrial. There was no testimony in the course of this case concerning an objective blueprint for a plan to be tried and acquitted, other than the testimony about the Law and Order episode. We do not believe that the jury can, at this point, segregate what they already know. Harm has already been done. End of quote. The judge disagreed. She denied the emotions, but directed that Parnum present a stipulation to the jury. The stipulation revoked Dietz's early testimony and added new testimony to record that no episode of Law and Order, Criminal Intent as described, was ever produced for the Law and Order television series. With this new information, the jury had a decision to make. It seems like the update softened their apparent hard stance. And on March 15, 2002, at 1.40 p.m., after a 35-minute deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict of recommending a life sentence. The judge upheld this recommendation. On April 3, 2002, George Parnum and Wendell Odom filed a one-page notice of appeal of Andrea Yates' conviction and sentencing March 18, 2002, for the offense of capital murder. In April 2002, Andrea Yates' mother, brothers, Brian and Andrew Kennedy, and Harris County residents filed a complaint against Dr. Saeed with the district attorney, Rosenthal. The complaint alleged that Saeed improperly managed Andrea Yates' medications and discharged her from Devereaux while she was still delusional. Quote, We feel that Dr. Saeed's actions of excessive, harmful treatment and the lack of action to warn about endangerment of children made him negligent in his duty to protect children. End of quote. Senior prosecutors investigated the allegation and found Saeed not criminally responsible in the children's drownings. The statute of limitations for civil suit against Saeed expired in June 2003. Dr. Saeed received no punishment for his abhorrent conduct. He carried on with his career without even a slap on the wrist. He subsequently went on to hold positions as a chairman of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Mainland Medical Center Hospital in Texas, and the medical director of Devereaux Hospital in League City, and is now the medical director of Into Action Recovery Centers. Andrea Yates went on to serve her time at Rusk Penitentiary. On October 20, 2002, Andrea's prison psychiatrist had tapered her off the antipsychotic medication Haldol. He began increasing her dose of antidepressant Effexor in anticipation of the holidays. Andrea's letters to Rusty and to her friends, Debbie and Bob Holmes, began to ramble. Rusty visited his wife in prison and on his routine visiting days, Saturday. And on Saturday, December 21, 2002, and January 4, 2003, he said that, quote, Andrea worried him a little, especially on January 4th, end of quote. 
He thought she was manic. In mid-January, Andrea returned to the same level of psychosis as when she drowned her children. Now she was back to spending 23 hours a day alone in her cell. The pattern would repeat itself eight months later, in September 2003, when Andrea began refusing food, liquids, and medications, and slipped once again into psychosis. Andrea's conviction had been overturned on appeal. In her 2006 retrial, Andrea was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a state mental hospital. Andrea Yates is now 54 and housed in Kerrville State Hospital, a 202-bed facility. She lives in a private patient room. In addition to watching videos of her children, she walks around the gardens and the grounds of the facility and creates aprons and cards and other artwork in the craft room. She anonymously sells the aprons and cards she creates, turning the proceeds over to support the Yates Children Memorial Fund, a charity benefiting women's mental health that was founded by her attorney, George Parnham. Rusty Yates appeared on Oprah. He got remarried, and he now has an 11-year-old son with his second wife, who he is now divorced. Rusty discussed the tragedy in an interview with Oprah Winfrey, revealing that he still calls his ex-wife once a month and visits her annually. Rusty told Winfrey he has forgiven his children's murderer, noting that, quote, he blamed her illness, end of quote, for their deaths. During the interview, Rusty said that whenever he thinks of his five children, he imagines them as teenagers. So that's the end of this episode. This case is so incredibly tragic. Andrew has failed on so many levels. The doctors, her husband, the medical system as a whole. There were so many indications, so many signs that Andrea was an incredibly unwell woman. And she suffered because of this. She suffered because she was failed. There's so many people that I want to blame here. I want to rage against everyone. But it's not that simple. Rusty. Right away I was like, you know what? I don't like this guy. He was a selfish jerk. But in the same token, this man lost all of his children and was way over his head when it came to Andrea's illness. As far as the doctors go, there is no excuse, especially Dr. Saeed. And the fact that he went on to have a great career just makes me sick. And as for Andrea, now she's getting the care she needs and deserves, but it's far too late. And for the children, it's just devastating. So that's it. I'd love to know what you guys think of this case. You can let me know by email or on the Facebook page. And if you're not on the Facebook page, please head over and join the group, Stat Shocking Traumas and Treatments. I also want to thank everyone who has supported the show by going over to iTunes and leaving some reviews. Thank you to Cole C, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Thank you. <laughs> If I have ever missed any of you guys giving me a review, let me know. Give me heck. Because then that, that's bad. I don't, I don't want to miss giving people a thank you. Also, I want to thank Emma, Tanya, and Heather Wright from Nature vs. Narcissism for becoming new Patreon supporters. Thank you guys so much. And if anyone else would like to support me financially so I can carry on this podcast and make it even better as we go along, if you could please go check out the Patreon page for STAT. 
and I'll put everything in the show notes. So thank you everyone for joining me here today. And remember to take care of yourself, take care of one another, to love one another, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack. <laughs>